World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Britain is starting on a demographic rise that's unusual in the developed world. The number of 18-year-olds is on the up, and it will be for a decade. We look into the reasons behind the youthful bump and what it means for the country's economy. And let me tell you something about television news. Sometimes those presenters really are wearing shorts under the desk. During the pandemic, many of us tried the same trick on Zoom. Now, as we head back to the office, what will office wear look like? But first... Across China, investors are staging protests at the offices of Evergrande, the country's second-largest property developer. One investor said the company had cheated her out of all her money. She has nothing left. Evergrande has more debt than any property developer in the world, $300 billion worth. One group of people it owes money to are would-be Chinese homeowners. The company sells houses that aren't yet built. It also owes money to bondholders, domestically and internationally. It's a business model that's been precarious for years. It got dangerous when China's government imposed new rules on just how much debt property companies could carry and how much cash they must have on hand. Now, the prospect that Evergrande could collapse has roiled the markets. So far, Evergrande is still afloat. This morning, it said it would make one big payment on a debt due in renminbi. But the status of another, even bigger debt in dollars due tomorrow remains unclear. People have been talking about the collapse of Evergrande for nearly 10 years. Don Wineland is The Economist's China business and finance editor and is based in Hong Kong. It's also been thought that Evergrande is too big to fail, given how large it is. But clearly, with what we're seeing right now, it can indeed fail. Why is this coming apart now? About a year ago, regulators put in place limits on the amount of leverage that these property companies can take on. And essentially, the government has created almost an artificial cash crunch that is pushing these developers toward default and, in some cases, collapse. So is that to say you think Evergrande will collapse? So it did say this morning that it had reached an agreement with bondholders onshore, that is, in China, in renminbi-denominated bonds, and will be able to satisfy the payment that comes due tomorrow. That leaves a big question mark on the offshore bonds, that is, the U.S. dollar-denominated bonds that also come due tomorrow, and we don't really have an idea about that specifically. But 
if it was to make those payments this week, I don't think that that solves Evergrande's problem. It's already been missing payments to banks and to suppliers. So this business model is is coming apart. If they don't miss the payments this week, it's it's almost inevitable that they will miss payments at some point in the future. That at least is the view from rating agencies. If that's an inevitability, though, what will happen next in this saga? Could this spread? So many analysts expect the same problem that Evergrande is facing to play out at other developers. We're actually seeing that occur right now. There was a developer on Monday, its share price collapsed by about 90%. There are other companies, very large ones, that are borrowing money from their executives in order to pay the bills. So it's not necessarily a knock-on effect from Evergrande. Evergrande is creating some market panic, but really Evergrande is a symptom of this government campaign And there's also the question for, you know, individuals who have already paid for their homes, sometimes years in advance. By one count, there are 1.4 million individual properties that have been paid for but not delivered yet. That's a lot of people. That's a lot, you know, it's a big chunk of economic activity with a question mark over it. So Evergrande has this enormous pile of debt and new rules on how to deal with it. Things were to continue to go south. Will the government bail it out? There are a lot of questions right now on what the government is willing to do to help Evergrande. So at least some type of bailout is probably in the works. You know, whether that is a bailout where they bail out the individual property owners, the people that have already purchased homes, or if they need to step in and actually bail out bondholders either in China or offshore in the in the US dollar bonds. The bond bailouts seem less likely. They bail out Evergrande, then how many other property companies are they going to need to bail out? So that's how analysts see this at this point. So is that to say that the government is essentially happy to let Evergrande fail? Well, so over the summer, the highest level of leadership in China, including the president of China, Xi Jinping, began signaling and messaging on this thing that they're calling common prosperity. And That's been interpreted in in many ways, but one of the core parts of this is wealth equality, and part of that is lowering house prices, or at least stabilizing the property market, which has been rising incredibly rapidly for well over a decade. And most recently, the spokesperson for the Statistical Bureau in China said that housing is for living, not for speculation. That message has been repeated many times, not just this year, but in the past. And that's getting at the fact that many, many properties in China are purchased by people that don't need to live in them. They buy them because for the past decade, the prices have basically only gone up. Meaning the government wants to tamp down on this kind of speculative buying. And if companies like Evergrande get caught up in it, then that's fine from their perspective. I mean, that being the case, what does all this tell you about China's economic future? So because this is an orchestrated campaign, the Chinese economy and the property market has been charging along and the government is coming in to reshape the way that it works. The Chinese property market accounts for anywhere from 20 to 15 percent of economic activity in the country. So we're talking about the builders, the people that supply the paint, the workers. It's a huge chunk of the economy. So if 
the government is willing to slow this down. And they, they've never been willing to do this in the past. They've always relied on the property market to push the economy forward. If they are really willing to slow that down, I mean, it means slower economic growth in China. And one of the problems with that right now is the other engines of growth are also slowing down a bit. There's been this Delta outbreak recently. Other parts of the economy have also been hit by some of these high-level campaigns. If they follow through with what they're doing right now and they significantly slow the property sector activity, they will have to deal with quite a bit of pain when it comes to delivering economic growth. Don, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks very much. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. In much of the developed world, demographic trends have been going one way for years. Now, economies around the world are facing the challenge of an aging population. Is that there will be two billion people over the age of 60. Japan's year of population aged 65 and older has been rising since 1950. Birth rates down, life expectancies up, on average then, aging populations. That raises worries about all kinds of things, from productivity to pensions. In Britain, though, another trend is poking through, thanks to the flourishing fecundity of the early 2000s. Britain is having a strange demographic moment. The number of 18-year-olds, which had been falling, has just started to rise, and it's going to be a big rise lasting about 10 years. Joel Budd is our social policy editor. Britain is going from having about 700,000 18-year-olds in 2020 to having about 900,000 18-year-olds in a decade's time. So there's going to be a 25% increase in the number of 18-year-olds over that period. And so why is this jump in 18-year-olds happening? There's a couple of reasons. One is that the 2000s were a fairly good time to have children. Wages had outstripped inflation for some time. So people were feeling quite economically confident until the effects of the financial crisis really kicked in. But the other reason is simply that there were a lot of women of childbearing age around. There had been quite high immigration, so about a quarter of births were to immigrant women. And Britain had a kind of baby boom in the early 1960s, so it had a lot of women as a result born in the late 1980s. There's just a few other countries that look like Britain, so Ireland looks very similar, and the Czech Republic. But other than them, this is sort of an unusual situation for a rich country. In Europe as a whole, the number of 18-year-olds will only increase by about 2% over the next decade. And the increase in Britain is also quite a bit more rapid than in America. 
And what's the effect of that sudden rise in the number of 18-year-olds? This kind of lump of young people about seven or eight years ago was a huge problem for primary schools. Many primary schools, especially in London, had become really severely overcrowded. These days, the number of people applying for secondary school places is really big, and secondary schools are very crowded. But what's increasingly going to happen is that universities will become very crowded. University applications have been very high over the last two years, partly because of grade inflation, partly because of COVID. And they are going to keep going up very steeply. Britain's universities will become extremely full of domestic students and increasingly so over the next decade. So beyond schooling, how will all this affect the economy? It has a few effects. One will be simply that there will be more people coming into the job market. So people who own pubs and restaurants who tend to uh, rely on teenage workers and workers in their very early 20s have been complaining and complaining for the last kind of year and a half about how incredibly hard it is to find workers. And they blame this on Brexit and they blame it on lockdowns. But another reason is simply that there have not been very many teenagers. Well, over the next decade, there are going to be quite a lot more. And so they ought to find it a little bit easier. What about the arithmetic of the demographics, though, as regards what having that bulge in the workforce does for the state? This bulge in the number of 18-year-olds does help the Treasury, ultimately, because it simply gives Britain more young, productive, innovative people to counterbalance the increasing number of retired people. Now, it doesn't completely counterbalance the increasing number of retired people. That's simply a more powerful trend. But it helps. Demographers tend to talk about dependency ratios or old age dependency ratios, which is a number of old people relative to the working age population. And that ratio will increase in Britain as it will increase in all rich countries. But it will increase in Britain more slowly than it will increase in uh, most of Europe. And part of the reason for that is this kind of you know, rise in the number of young people. And what effect on the country's politics do you think that'll have, having this disproportionate number of young people? Britain has an extraordinarily kind of age-graded politics. If you want me to predict which party somebody will vote for, the only thing you really need to tell me is their age. And broadly, young people vote Labour, Lib Dem and Green, and old people vote Conservative. It's really a very stark pattern. So having slightly more 18-year-olds coming into the voting system will help Labour a bit, but it won't help Labour very much, probably, because these young people are often going to be settling in kind of university towns, and Labour already dominates those places. The other strange effect of this demographic bulge is that it makes the whole question of whether Brexit was a good idea or a bad idea more complicated. So when we're looking at the performance of the British economy over the next 10 or 20 years and comparing it to other countries' economies to see how Britain's doing, we'll need to ask the question, should we be controlling for the fact that Britain has this kind of youth bulge or should we ignore it? It makes that kind of crucial question about Britain much harder to answer. Thanks very much for your time, Joel. Thank you. She's looking for a job, that is, and she's dressed for it too. Tastefully, not expensively. Beth, the receptionist, wears a smart wool dress with a zippered plunge neckline. 
She can see that Pat's The pandemic put paid to many time-worn notions of work attire. Office workers like me were all dressed down and nowhere to go. I've got a closet full of snazzy shoes and wool blend trousers and crisp shirts almost entirely unworn since last March. For quite a lot of 2020, I have to admit, I didn't even wear socks. Now offices are opening back up, and it's an open question whether office fashion will get a top-to-bottom reworking. So much has been written about what people wore during lockdowns at Zoom meetings or what they didn't wear. Fanny Papagiorgio writes for The Economist. Many people during Zoom calls, they were in their boxer shorts and they were wearing a dress shirt on top or a, a silky blouse. So all the emphasis was on the top part of the body, but no one cared what they were wearing underneath. Of course, that had an impact on retailers because sales skyrocketed for tops, while as there was a decline in sales for trousers and skirts. And now that lockdowns are, are ending, what does that mean for brands? What are these retailers now thinking and doing? So there is a debate about what will happen to the future of the suit. Now the emphasis is a hybrid model. So, for example, a British fashion designer called Giles Deacon, he has launched um, a collection called Work From Anywhere. This is more like um, a looser cut clothing, but at the same time looking smart. So something that can work both ways. Um, And then there are also two Japanese firms, Aoki. They use fabric like pyjamas, but in a suit-like cut. The other firm, it's called Whatever INC, they use uh, working-from-home jammies, which are basically business on the top, loungewear on the bottom. So suits made of pyjama material and suits that are just pyjamas on the bottom, this this is not the stuff of traditional workwear. What about the sort of the classic brands? Well, they are apparently in trouble. So Brooks Brother, which is a famous menswear store uh, in America, a very traditional one, um, they filed for bankruptcy in 2020. Marks & Spencer, which is a British retailer on virtually every high street in the UK, they announced that it would no longer sell men's suits in more than half of its biggest stores. In 2016, JP Morgan issued a memo to its 240,000 employees saying that they were relaxing their dress code. And that trend, of course, accelerated during lockdowns. And now the hybrid model is more or less the norm across companies. And even at Goldman Sachs, ties are no longer de rigueur. People can go to client meetings without ties. What's your view on how things will go and how they should go? Well, during lockdowns, people, of course, were oppressed. So everybody was talking about a big party, a sexual revolution. They were talking about a lot of things. And one of them was that people would feel a strong desire to dress up, to ditch the yoga pants and the flip-flops and to wear high heels, nice clothes and go out in the world and experience things. In the 1920s, the fashion is very famous uh, now in the jazz era. This came straight after World War I and the Spanish flu. So I guess one can draw parallels to what we're going to experience after the pandemic. Fanny, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. 
If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and see you back here tomorrow. peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.